and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Luce Nguyen. My guest today is Nick Shula, Assistant Professor of Communications at Texas A&M University, Kingsville. We will discuss his paper, Queer Phenomenology in Law, a Critical Theory of Orientation, published in the Pace Law Review. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So let's start about talk about why did you write this paper and what's the main argument within it? So I wrote this paper based on work I had been doing as the director of debate at the University of Central Florida, uh, where we, several of my debaters and my assistant coaches, had been working through Sarah Ahmed's work to make arguments about the ways in which the debate activity, public policy, and federal government action were, in essence, anti-queer. And we found that one way to address this was to use Ahmed's work to explain the positionality and struggle of our debaters to relate to law and the federal government, given the lack of recognition or appreciation of queer folks and the ways in which various theories seemed insufficient to discuss how queer folks experience the law or federal government action. Uh, Ahmed's work on disorientation, on hammering, and identity more broadly, help make sense of this complex world. More recently, I was invited to give a talk at Southern Illinois University's Law School uh, by a dear friend, Aaron Hodson, who graduates this year and just accepted a job offer, so we should applaud her. Uh, Through her work with SIU's Outlaw Organization, an organization advocating for LGBTQ plus communities that many law schools around the United States have. To give a talk, and I had been thinking about queer phenomenology a lot, uh, a phrase which I steal uh, from a title of one of Sarah Ahmed's books. So I decided to come up to Carbondale and give a talk about these issues. Uh, That's probably a longer story uh, than you needed, but it is kind of the intellectual history of, of why I decided to work on these issues. And simply put, I think the work on LGBTQ plus communities in law is still relatively new. And as someone who had been working on these issues for the better part of of eight months prior to giving this talk and writing this article, reading and reading, making arguments, teaching and revising, I thought I had something to say that would build on the fine work of many other scholars, uh, most notably, at least in the legal academy, I think the the work of Dean Spade, uh, who's at the forefront of queer theory in the law. My argument is uh, that phenomenology helps us understand the ways in which queer people, and by extension, I think, minoritarians or marginalized people experience law. That understanding is important because it can be the basis for rethinking, rewriting, and even rejecting law when it fails to adequately account for different people in the world. So let's talk a little bit about what phenomenology is and why it's important to analyzing the law and its offshoots. So I think there are a couple ways to understand phenomenology. Uh, and the term gets used in this in these ways uh, fairly interchangeably. The first one is that it's a study of consciousness through firsthand experience. The second one is that it's a study of experiencing the world. And I think those are, are reasonably similar positions. Um, one emphasizes consciousness more, quite obviously. The other seems to allow for non-firsthand explorations of experience. I'm not committed to either one because I think they're both important. And indeed, I don't even think they're exclusive of each other. A fundamental question of phenomenology 
is what experience is and what role it has in how we understand the world. The reason phenomenology, I think, is important is because it asks us to think about experience in ways that often get lost in discussions of law. Sometimes we forget about the people in our court cases or for whom we advocate. This isn't unique to law, but related to everything from representational politics to lobbying to public advocacy. Phenomenology tells us that understanding, that meaning, comes through the thoughtful understanding of experience, which centers people in meaning-making work and interpretation, uh, as well as in society writ large. And I think phenomenology is important for those reasons and really reorients a word orientation that we'll come back to again, I'm sure, uh, reorients us towards the ways people experience law. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of the person, the body, in theorizing law, particularly the minoritarian body and the queer body? So I think the body is important because it is through the body that we experience law. It's easy to think that law functions ideologically or in some sort of Gramscian hegemonic way that it is somehow ephemeral and that and that may certainly be true. I think it's really easy to understand law as out there, as, as part of a set of processes, a set of decisions made by decision makers that we don't know and experience on a daily basis. But I think that denies the very centrality of the body to understanding law. Decisions about healthcare, incarceration, police brutality, personal injury, mass torts, are questions of how our bodies experience a complex network of laws and regulations. Law has material effects, and sometimes we write about law, uh, give legal advice, debate law and policy, and we end up forgetting that this is certainly about the nature of statutory interpretation, the Constitution, what law the city council should or should not pass. But really, it's about the ways in which people will be affected and the quality of life or ways in which they will be able to live their lives are affected by the law. Sure, the troubling detention practices at the United States' southern border have trampled due process, and that's important, I think. But what these laws and rules are doing is killing people. And I'd rather have an understanding of law based on the cruelly and inhumanely ways in which people are killed uh, in this country. And here I sound uh, perhaps a little too intense, but nonetheless, uh, I'd rather understand law that way because of how important uh, the lived experience and realities people are facing in the world uh, is to law, rather than understand it as a sort of ephemeral discussion about rights and liberties and constitutionality. It's not an either or, I don't think, but I do think that we need to talk about the body as a site of law. This is particularly important for minoritarian populations, people who are marginalized, because it's often these folks who have relatively little say in the law. 
They are elected to uh, legislative bodies at far lower rates than we would assume they should be, given their percentage in the population. They are often excluded from public policy discussions, from corporate boardrooms, uh, from law school classrooms, from teaching institutions. So I think it's important that we do work that orients ourselves, that makes us think about the ways in which the bodies of minoritarian folks experience the law. Because I don't think, or I'm not convinced at least, that we're doing a great job for that or for those people now. So within your paper, you talk about a priori and a posteriori claims. What are those and why does it matter? So the way I describe a priori uh, and a priori or a posteriori claims in this article is that a priori claims are claims that do not need a warrant. Or, or an explanation. Uh, so from an argumentation theory standpoint, they're true of their very nature. A priori claims are claims that we don't need to experience to know are true. So for example, I argue that we don't have to watch a family member or friend die to know that's horrible. We don't have to observe the violence in our prison system to understand that that violence is bad. We don't need to do that. So, of course, there's considerable debate about this. Uh, Some people manipulate claims about life to serve narrow political purposes, uh, or those that degrade the well-being or life potential of others. But that would take us far away, I think, from this article. A posteriori claims are those that are dependent on knowledge or experience. Uh, A good example of a priori claims uh, tends to be mathematics, um, although I think that that's debatable, but I I don't want to start a debate with any mathematicians. I've done that before, and it can be dangerous. Um, A posteriori claims depend on knowledge and experience, and a good example of this is is pretty much the, the milieu of legal and political arguments that exist out in the world. The problem, I think, is that we do a bad job thinking through these two things. And well, the way I've staked out a priori knowledge is much more expansive uh, than some of my philosophical colleagues uh, might urge for. I think we need to appreciate how important people are as an a priori claim. The problem I isolate is that in law, we often make statements about the importance of democracy, having vibrant Um, legal institutions, reasonable regulatory regimes, and constitutional safeguards against government intrusion. We do all that all the time. And we do that from an a priori standpoint. All of that is true because it is the bedrock of democracy, of a functioning state, of a peaceful society. Well, I think that's wrong because these, uh, the reason these things are important is actually the a priori consideration of respect for people, for their recognition, articulation, and inclusion. So in this paper, I'm concerned about the ways in which we frame a lot of legal discussions as a priori considerations about the nature of law and government, while ignoring what I think underlies them, which are a priori considerations about the welfare of people. Um, And so my point here uh, is that when we talk about law, government and best practices without focusing on people, we're really missing sort of the impetus between a lot of the 
legal work that we do, either as legislators, as legal scholars. And I think that phenomenology helps get us to a better understanding of people's importance in lawmaking and meaning making in law. So can you talk a little bit about disorientation and how it relates to the idea of phenomenology? So disorientation uh, is something that Sarah Ahmed talks a lot about uh, in the various uh, articles, books, and talks she's given for a number of years. And for her, it's both a site of empowerment and disempowerment. Uh, In the same way, I think that uh, Michel Foucault theorized power as both constraining and enabling. Ahmed thinks that disorientation is an expression of how people experience the world. She is particularly concerned with how queer people experience the world and writes and talks about this in a number of venues. The world can be disorienting in that there are so many rules and laws at play that it can be difficult to make sense of that world. For queer or trans or gender fluid people, everything from box checking on applications to college, using the restroom, shopping, registering for dating sites, and the like, can be a site or be an opportunity of disorientation. The reason orientation and disorientation are important is because they describe a relationship to law in a much more descriptive way than some of the other terms that describe legal relationships do. So, for example here, you know, plaintiff and defendant and tortfeasor and even citizen tells a lot about our relationship to the law or to a specific group of laws. But I think that this idea of disorientation gets gets us to a better understanding of how we experience that law. Disorientation helps us think through the complications of life. It helps us think through how complicated law is and how we experience law in different ways based a lot on our identity. So depending on how one um, describes themselves, articulates their positionality, that affects the role you have in the world and the ways in which people perceive you. But it also affects the ways in which various laws and regulatory regimes um, engage you and how you experience the world as a result of that engagement. So what is the role of judges and identities? Within your paper, you kind of focus on something that Justice Sotomayor wrote. Yeah, so um, Justice Sotomayor, like really, to use a baseball metaphor, hit it out of the park. Um, And I think that we have a good indication of that from the tremendous backlash from the political right uh, when, you know, they essentially, before the creation of the uh, mind-blowing emoji, had, were, were sending this around to every news outlet that would listen because they couldn't comprehend when Justice Sotomayor argued that, of course, her, her living, her lived experience, the way she experienced the law, growing up, going to law school, etc., that that would shape how she adjudicated matters on the Supreme Court. Now, I think for a lot of us, legal scholars, people who have studied argument or debate or political science, I think for a lot of us, this wasn't particularly interesting or shocking. Um, Try as we might, we always bring our experiences to bear on the decisions in front of us. There is no tabula rasa or blank slate position where we just get to erase 
all of the things we've gone through in life, all of the things we've read, the experiences we've had, the people we've known uh, to make decisions. That's just not how decision-making works. And so I think that Sotomayor was really describing something that's fundamentally true about how identity shapes our interactions with law. And, and I think that's true, regardless of we're talking about how justices on the Supreme Court decide issues, or we're talking about how in our everyday interactions, we interact with professors, colleagues, and romantic partners. Sotomayor did a lot to encourage discussions of the ways in which minoritarians experience the world differently, which challenges not only myths of post-racialism uh, or the sort of equality impulse of the United States, but also the idea that identity does not impact law. Of course it does. If one is black, one in three people uh, who are black born since 1990 will end up incarcerated. The Washington Post recently reported that one in six older black people have been homeless at some point in their life. So I think that identity matters in law. And Sotomayor really oriented us towards appreciating that in ways that were much more, I guess, expansive or perhaps publicly accessible than some of the scholarship uh, that, that folks like me and others are citing to, to emphasize the ways in which identity shapes law. So one of the things you did cite was Marx and the dancing table. Can you talk about what that is and how it relates to your article? So, so I'm, I'm a Marxist, uh, and that's something that I've been uh, fairly open about for, for a long time, uh, much to the chagrin, I think, of, of my father. Um, but the reason that Marx's dancing table metaphor is interesting uh, is that he uses it to describe the ways in which a commodity, the table in this instance, uh, and he's talking about, the metaphor is about an actual table, a four-legged wood table. Uh, the ways in which the commodity is imbued with value and meaning. Mark ima Marx imagines a table dancing because it has become other. It's no longer a tree. It's, it's not simply a product of a tree, but rather it's a commodity with its own life force in capitalism. We can exchange it for chairs. We can exchange it for a shovel. We can exchange it for, for bedding. Uh, we can sell it. Um, it requires some amount of currency for it. And this state, Marx thinks, explains the ways in which commodities become larger than themselves, the ways in which a commodity has a life beyond its physical essence. Edmund Husserl, uh, one of the founders of phenomenology, then drew on this example of the dancing table when he theorized the relationship between the writer and the writer's desk. And Sarah Ahmed's work is very much influenced uh, by Husserl and other early uh, phenomenologists, including Martin Heidegger. And Husserl is interested in the ways in which the writer is oriented to the desk. So we have Marx working on this question of how the desk itself or the table itself is oriented in capitalism, how we are oriented to it as an exchangeable commodity. Husserl takes this another way and thinks about specifically how we engage the table. And so I think that these are interesting questions or, or that this metaphor is important 
because it gets at the centrality of orientation towards our civic and social life. Uh, and, and this example, I think, is important, uh, particularly the work that Husserl does on the question of the writer's table. Because if you think about it, indeed, where you write, if you're, if you're a writer, a scholar, a poet, uh, matters a whole lot. Which direction do you face? What kind of chair do you sit in? How close are you to your computer? How bright is your computer screen? Do you write some things in Word? Do you write some things on a notepad? How many post-it notes do you have? Which direction do you face? Is the window open or closed? All of these questions are questions of orientation that shape our ability to engage in writing. So much as Marx was talking about the orienta- or our orientation towards the table or the table's orientation in capitalism, and Husserl takes this and talks about orientation as a set of relationships to objects in the rest of the world. Ahmed then works on this and is interested in the ways in which we are oriented to each other and to other systems beyond the materiality or the material world that is present in front of us. So what does accommodation look like within the idea of phenomenology? So Sarah Ahmed uh, writes, and, and I quote here, we learn about worlds when they do not accommodate us. Not being accommodated can be pedagogy. And I think that that's an important statement because it's almost startlingly simple. When one doesn't fit in, one learns. When one has difficulty or experiences disorientation, one learns. When one is rejected, one learns. That's important because life is hard. And for listeners, perhaps in law school, law school can be difficult. But it's some of those difficulties, some of those opportunities where we're not accommodated, We aren't asked to join law review. We aren't asked uh, to help a professor uh, with writing their article. We don't uh, get the job or the internship we apply to. Uh, A potential romantic partner says they don't want to date us. All of these opportunities or all of these times where we are not accommodated are opportunities and times to learn. And I think Sarah Ahmed's focus on not only when opportunities happen, but the ways in which a lack of opportunities or frustration or disorientation or not being accommodated, the way those really troubling moments can be opportunities to learn is very important because it really centers our participation in the world, not simply on our successes, but also on our failures, difficulties, inabilities, etc. And I think that that's a much more empowering view of the world and one that really centers the complexity of human life in making decisions. So I think that there's probably another way to think about this. Um, The simple version of accommodation is when we don't know how to fix something in our house or apartment. And this is an example I use when when I've taught this article uh, several times. So we don't know, something's broken in the house. We don't know what to do about that. Uh, We don't have a friend who knows. Can't call our parents. They don't really know because they're not there. Our landlord, if you're living in an apartment, ignores us. Not an uncommon story for people who have lived in apartments. We're not accommodated. And that's stressful and that's sad and that's frustrating and that's anger-inducing. And a lot of the work that, uh, that Ahmed has done is talking about how these lack of accommodations, lack of being included, invited, welcomed into spaces can be all of these things. But... It's also a time 
where we have an opportunity to do something, to do some research, to reframe our expectations of others, to learn something new. Obviously, in this extended example, this usually ends up YouTubing and trying to figure out how to fix your house. And we come out better, more knowledgeable, and even more passionate precisely because of the sort of traumatic or difficult event of not being accommodated. Another example of this, I think, is I grew up a proud Italian-American, and many Italian-Americans have a similar story here in the United States. Uh, Not unusual at all. And I was pumped full of beliefs about the great accomplishments of Italian-Americans. Then when I was dating someone in college and we were going to her home on a break, she told me her family hated Italians. And I was like, oh, this is is strange. Uh, Also, uh, I don't know what we're going to do about that. We're in the car right now. Um, And now I knew there had been a long history of discrimination against Italians. Uh, Throughout history, there's some uh, pretty uh, aggressive anti-Italian cartoons throughout the 20s and 30s in U.S. newspapers comparing Italians uh, to to everything from from monkeys to killers to criminals, etc. And and obviously this discrimination still exists today with shows uh, like the Jersey Shore that has really set back, I think, some of the ways in which we think about Italian-Americanness in the U.S. But this time where I was not accommodating, I was expecting to be hated, my last name being made fun of, uh, I didn't think this trip was going to go well at all. But it was also this instance that really inspired in me the opportunity to write one of my senior theses as an undergraduate on Italian-Americanness in the city of Pittsburgh, where my uh, Pennsylvania, where my father is from, and, and where my uh, grandparents lived until their passing. Um, and the ways in which Italian-Americanness moved around the city of Pittsburgh based on transportation policies, where we put interstates, what bus services run, where we, uh, what streets we pave, um, the ways in which those policy decisions affected Italian-Americans and how, quite frankly, Italian-Americans were never included in these things. And, and had it not been for the sort of lack of accommodation uh, from my then romantic partner, we didn't, we didn't use the word partner then, boyfriend and girlfriend, but if it wasn't for that instance, uh, I really wouldn't have had the opportunity to think more deeply about the relationship of Italian-Americanness to society back then, historically, but also uh, to our present time. And I think that that instance, I tell the story all the time, people are probably tired of hearing it, but I think that that story really helped me get a sense for what I could expect of other people and also what I could do or think about or ways in which I could engage the history of discrimination, not only based on racial groups, which I do a lot of work on, but also based on ethnicity, which I think is something that that we often don't do enough work on. And were it not for that lack of accommodation, uh, for for my disorientation in her family scheme or understanding uh, of ethnic relations, I wouldn't have been able to do that work. So I think that's another example of how we can think about what the ways in which not being accommodated can be a time of pedagogical significance. So you've talked about the work of Sarah Ahmed a lot during this interview. I just wonder what other scholars, what other work really inspired you to write this entire piece and your scholarship in general? So p- perhaps embarrassingly, um, I, I'm really indebted to a lot of French thinkers 
um, because these are some of the people that that as a as a high school debater and as a college debater, I, I read relatively early in my life. And, and here we're talking about all of the cliche names like uh, Derrida and Deleuze and Foucault. And, and it's not, I think every, for the most part, I think a lot of people who do uh, at least what, what might be postmodern or modern legal theory are, are influenced by these folks. Um, and so I think that they play a, a big role in the scholarship I do in terms of thinking about questions of power, of meaning, and of resistance. I'm also interested in and have done some work with and written a law review article on uh, Slovene philosopher Slavo Žižek, uh, who, despite his many flaws, I think is doing a lot of work to bring philosophy or at least critical theory or cultural criticism to an eclectic audience in ways that we don't see as much as we used to. Uh, one of the first thinkers I read very closely was Paulo Freire, the Brazilian adult educator uh, who, who worked uh, to increase literacy uh, among adults uh, in Brazil. And his work on critical pedagogy got me introduced uh, to, to the New York-based uh, educational and English theorist Bell Hooks. So much of my work revolves around race and this question of how do we teach people or enable people or empower people to know and how do we appreciate that knowing. Uh, one of the problems isn't that people don't know or minoritarian com communities, um, marginalized populations don't know, but that we really seem to not appreciate what they do know or the ways in which they convey that knowledge. My work has also been shaped uh, in law school. I did a lot of work on critical race theory. Uh, so the usual suspects like Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, Adrian Catherine Wing, and Richard Delgado have been important to me as well. Uh, I hope to be contributing, I think, to a conversation about what a better world looks like uh, and that my scholarship somehow inspires someone, uh, anyone, to think more deeply about the world and their place in it. Law and philosophy shouldn't be the refuge of only the well-to-do in the ivory tower. I don't know if I'm either well-to-do or in the ivory tower, but maybe. Um, and I think that Cornell West, I think, makes this argument in an interview with Astra Taylor uh, in her documentary, The Examined Life. You know, philosophy isn't only those people who learn philosophy in schools. It's people who live in the world and have ideas about the ways in which we are in that world, both in terms of ontology and epistemology. Uh, I'm also shaped by the writings of folks, and I think this continues with this question of, do you have to be a legal theorist to speak on law? Or do you have to be a legal theorist or, or, a, le or a law professor or, or someone who presents at, at law conferences to do legal work? And I think that we know that's true. I, uh, your podcast itself has, has interviewed some folks who have had experiences in prisons um, formerly incarcerated individuals. And I think that that work is important because if it weren't for hearing the voices of people who for the long history of the academy, regardless of whether one is in professional school, the social sciences, the humanities, for the long history uh, of the academy, those folks have been left out. But I do think that those voices have shaped a lot of the work I do. From St. Paul to Antonio Gramsci to George Jackson, about whom I wrote my dissertation, all of these folks come from a state of deprivation and incarceration. And I think that 
the struggle of those people to be recognized and be heard also shapes a lot of my work. And lastly, um, I think that this question of marginalization, who gets to count, who gets to speak, is motivated by a lot of scholars uh, of color, um, particularly the work of folks like Spivak and, uh, and Linda Alkoff, who have written about the ways in which women of color specifically have had relatively few opportunities to be heard or be listened to or be appreciated or accepted as knowers in spaces that are often organized, maintained, and defended by men. So I'm always interested in the ways in which we count knowledge, what counts as knowledge, what is the appropriate way to get to knowledge, how, what we label as knowledgeable, how we assign someone uh, or describe people as educated or expressing an educated position. So these are some of the people I think that influence my work. Uh, I'm deeply invested in questions of empowerment and relationships of power and the ways in which the law might not always do, it might aspire to do a better job, might aspire to include more people, might aspire to protect, protect rights and liberty, liberties. But I'm really interested in the ways in which law fails and what those failures can tell us and how we can re-theorize those failures to hopefully have a better world or a better orientation towards law so that other folks, folks that are, have traditionally been left out of legal understanding, can participate and engage law in meaningful ways. So how can phenomenology be important for minoritarian groups, particularly LGBT folks and also uh, African Americans, the economically marginalized, and other minoritarian groups? Sure. So, you know, I think this is a really important question because I, it's easy to read articles and assume, well, this is only about this marginalized group. And I think we have a lot of uh, a lot of folks working uh, in intersectional uh, on intersectionality in intersectional ways. Uh, and, and law, for the most part, has been on the forefront of a lot of this work. Um, but although this article is predominantly about queer theory, queer phenomenology, queer persons, I really want folks to understand that phenomenology isn't only usable or, or only appreciable by queer folks. That's important because if we think about the struggles of black people, indigenous people, women, migrants, law is very personal. We have this great example now, uh, as, I, as I discussed before, uh, of the Trump administration's draconian policies at the U.S. southern border. It doesn't so much matter uh, what the law is in some sense. What matters is that migrants and even not, not only migrants, but also U.S. citizens, uh, are getting treated horribly. Family separations, detainment, sickness, fear, threats of violence. Law doesn't necessarily get us there. If we're thinking of black law, uh, black letter law or white papers or congressional research briefings um, or memos or legal briefs, law is, in some sense, family separation, death, illness, dehumanization, and the like. Um, well, I'm no insurance law scholar, I often think about the ways the Zong Massacre of 1781, where a, slaver, a slave ship's crew threw more than 130 Africans into the ocean to their deaths. 
The Zong's owners made a claim of insurance for the slaves. They killed them, but they had to, to save the other slaves. So they were due insurance money. The insurers refused to pay. The court held that in some instances, killing slaves was legal and that the insurer had to pay. This strikes us now as profoundly troubling, but I'd argue that it was the experience, the bodily condition of one's lungs filling with water, the panic of drowning, uh, that mobilized the abolitionist movement. It wasn't that there was this ephemeral question of, gosh, maybe slavery was wrong, but it was really the ability to understand the traumatic, traumatic bodily experience of drowning in the ocean. And I think that we get the sort of visceral response. And again, this is why the body is important. And this is why, regardless of, of one's positionality, the body should be a site for appreciating law. We get the sense that the body can be a place for us to reshape our understanding of law, because it's at the body that people for many years, many centuries, have experienced law. And here I'm also thinking about uh, the sorts of work, at least as it relates to blackness, where, where I do a lot of, uh, a lot of my, my research and writing. Uh, this relates, again, at least visually, to J.M.W. Turner's 1840 painting, The Slave Ship, which is this sort of representation of the Zong Massacre. And if you look at this painting, uh, you see horses drowning and the abject horror and the abjection of black life. Uh, these are phenomenological questions. What is horror? What is abjection? Calling on the work of Julia Kristeva and others. Uh, also recently, Kelvin L. Warren has written a book uh, called Ontological Terror, where he talks about or he discusses uh, the ways in which the black body functions as the abject. And that sort of work, I think, is important because it demonstrates to us the centrality of the black body in the constitution of legal regimes that have not valued black participation, black humanity, etc. And again, this uh, this brings us, uh, I think, to to this question of what can the black black body do, and what does law say that body can do, um, which gets us into a whole discussion. Uh, of questions of police brutality and the relationship um, between policing and blackness, blackness and policing. Um, the more we understand, I think, the traumatic nature of law, the more we can engage in legal thinking that supports people and supports difference. So I'm always talking about quite regularly uh, when I write about law or when I'm giving talks about law, about the very traumatic space that is law, because I think that's where we really do our learning. We've got to think about slavery, about mass torts. We've got to think about violence against women. We've got to think about the ways in which queer bodies uh, or, or black, you know, trans women are killed and missing. The ways in which indigenous uh, girls and women uh, go on are missing and go unreported. We've we've really got to center that in our understanding of law. Because I think that's the only way we can do a better job to think about law that isn't only case books and case law, the province of well-to-do whites, but allows us to engage the vast milieu uh, of, of U.S. law and people 
And I don't think we do that unless we understand law as much more traumatic, uh, as much less whole than we have for most of uh, most of the the years we've been studying law formally. So what's the overall narrative here? And do you have any final thoughts about what you wrote or anything that we've talked about? So my goal with this paper, I think, was to impact a broad audience of people who were concerned with how we live in the world, how we experience everything from hope to anger, despair to satisfaction, fear to love. And queer phenomenology helps us locate law, not in dusty casebooks or federal reporters, but rather in the experience of queer people, of the experiences they have with law. I, of course, tend to think of law as big, so law, and big law not in the sense of mega firms, but law as a system of social and political connections that distributes rights and responsibilities. Um, and, although not always, often entails with it a threat of punishment for law's transgression. So for me, law is much more than case law and statute, statutes. It's a social system that involves each and every one of us on a daily basis at a deeply personal level. A better theory of law takes into account the experiences we have with law, more so than it abstracts the iterative process of moral and ethical instantiation. So I hope readers uh, or folks who are interested in these questions will think more closely about the body and about how LGBTQ plus folks experience law uh, and how we can better account for the complexity of queer experience in a legal system that does a relatively poor and job, poor job of embracing these folks, uh, as well as people of color, women, and other marginalized populations. And I think that, you know, if people come away from this paper or from this article with an understanding that law is complex, not only in its practice or, or how professionals, lawyers and attorneys uh, engage law, but it's complex for people living their everyday life as they try to make sense of a world that is structured by law at virtually every turn we make. And I think if people uh, come away from this article understanding that, we'll be taking a big step toward or we'll be moving towards uh, a, an understanding of law that empowers folks who have been consistently disempowered by law. So as a final question, what do you want people, our listeners, uh, your fellow scholars and policymakers to take away from your paper? Sure. Um, I mean, one, one thing I think that policymakers need to do uh, is to stop legislating uh, what have been colloquially termed or termed in the popular press bathroom bills. Uh, we have to stop uh, banning people from going to the restroom. Uh, um, regard or because of how they identify or do not identify, uh, we got to do better than that. Um, you know, I'd like to see policymakers start incorporating more inclusive language into their laws, so that we're not just using uh, he or she, but also including they and theirs, etc. I think that's really important. Uh, I'm not unappreciative, or, or I, I don't fail to understand that for a long time, he, then he, she, uh, was the norm in a lot of law and policy writing. But I think just because we have done that, or it's very common, 
doesn't mean we can't go to great lengths now to start reforming that language to be more responsive to our understanding uh, of gender identity, gender presentation, sexual uh, orientation, and other related issues. Um, I think if policymakers focus on reforming the language they use, that would be an important step uh, in making this world uh, more powerful. I'd also, uh, particularly for those people impacted by these language choices, but I also think that we benefit regardless of our specific orientation or relationship to the LGBTQ plus community um, by constructing a world that is more empowering for people. Um, I think that there's only a risk of a benefit uh, for everyone when those sorts of uh, actions are taken. I also think that uh, scholars should continue to do work on queer theory. Uh, there's, there's so much queer theory work getting done uh, in a lot of other disciplines, uh, English literature, sociology, comparative literature, communication studies. And, and I think queer theory has had some difficulty uh, gaining traction in legal scholarship. And I think that there's a lot more work to be done there. So, so for those folks, and again, there are, there are many scholars out there doing this work, but, but I think we could do a lot more of that work, um, particularly as we become more appreciative of the ways in which our coller, colleagues, fellow scholars, and students um, may not fit cisgender traditional norms about uh, orientations, uh, gender identities, and the like. I think that we've got to do a better job uh, doing the scholarship and also assuring uh, LGBTQ plus folks that there is room to succeed in law, whether it's as an attorney, as a legal scholar, pursuing a PhD about law or law and policy, that that one doesn't have to deny one's identity or push one's identity to the side to do this sort of work, which I, which is really important for folks. Um, but, but ultimately, you know, if people take away from this article, uh, that phenomenology helps us understand experience and that experience needs to be centered in law, I'd be very happy. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's been really great. And I hope I can write another article that warrants doing this again.
Well, I can't tell you why. Might not know why until after it's through. But at least I gotta try. Then you might understand too. Cause love is why I go back. Like I knew all along. The fact is, I even love you. This time that you're wrong, I prove it to you. I'm not just a fool. I'm not just a fool. No, I prove it to you. 